You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. When we first started coming to Providence, uh, I started a, a Bible study for new believers, non-believers, as sort of a safe space to invite people in and uh, both encounter God's word, but also to, to raise, you know, raise questions, have a safe space to raise questions. And what I very soon discovered is that when you give people a safe space to raise questions about Christianity, you get some very strange questions. Um, and sometimes you'll get a question that's like so weird, so off the walls, that you can't just answer it like no, and then move on. Uh, you have to sit with that question for a little bit and, and, and get to the issue or the question beneath the question because there's a whole set of assumptions that are really driving it. And I think that's sort of what's going on here in John 14. Um, and just for context, uh, Jesus has just finished the Last Supper with his disciples. He's explained the new covenant. Uh, he's washed their feet, both symbolically to teach them their need for cleansing and also as an example for them. Uh, he has sent Judas out to betray him, and he's just told them, okay, well, you know, we've been waiting for this, and now my hour has finally come, uh, and I too am going to leave you. And then very understandably, all of the disciples start to get troubled or worried, and I think they're troubled and worried in part because they, they have this very strong misconception about who Jesus is, and he needs to get to the question beneath the question. And so he's going to say, he's going to say two things to quiet their anxiety. He's going to say, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he's going to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this is, this is going to be, these are sort of the two focal points of the text. There's a what, don't worry, but believe in me. And there's a why, because I am the way and the truth and the life. And so that'll be our outline for this afternoon Um, we're going to have three points. Don't worry, but believe in me because I am the way. Don't worry, but believe in me because I am the truth. And don't worry, but believe in me because I am the life. All right, so point one. Don't worry, but believe in me because I am the way. Or let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in Christ and his way, his provision for reconciliation with the Father. Uh, and, and so the immediate question, I think, is, well, okay, why do we need a way of reconciliation to the Father at all? Um, and the biblical answer would be, because God is holy, and we are not. And so that's what I would call the, the problem of holiness, that God's standard is be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are not perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. We do not love as Christ loves. We're not holy like he is holy. And therefore, uh, we fall short of his standard. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, and I think the disciples would have felt this very keenly because they're living in a semi-exilic Israel. That, that God had given this great covenant to Israel and he said, I'll take you out of Egypt and I'll put you in the promised land and I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, and what ended up happening is that they began to profane that covenant with their sin and with their idolatry until the point where God drives them out of the land as a, as a chastisement for what they had done. And eventually God raises up you know, Cyrus in Persia to send them back into the land. And a lot of them come back. 
Uh, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them are scattered throughout the empire or even beyond the reaches of the empire. Um, and, and even those that are back are still under Roman control and there's still uh, this very corrupt leadership in Israel. And so there's this real sense that uh, the exile is not quite over and that, that the reason the exile is not quite over is because, because of the sin, this lingering sin that Israel has. Uh, and so everyone's looking for answers. Like, how do we end the exile? And, and one of the big answers that people are hoping for is the Messiah. They're hoping that, that great David's greater son will arrive and he'll be sort of like a military ruler and he'll come in and he'll drive out the Romans and he'll restore the temple worship to what it should be. Um, and, and Israel will be, you know, it'll be back to its Solomonic glory. And this is probably, I think, what the disciples are thinking and they'll think that Jesus is the Messiah and we're going to be his lieutenants. And I think they're, they're thinking that in part because they say stuff like, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at your right and your left hand in your glory? Uh, or a little later they'll say, um, Lord, is, it, is, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, and I'm also getting it from this text. And if you just look down at, at verse 36 in the exchange between Peter and Jesus. So, so Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answers him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Um, Peter seems to be thinking about Jesus saying, I'm going away in terms of danger. There's, maybe there's some kind of mission he's going on. Um, maybe there's a battle that needs to get fought. And actually we'll see, you know, in a couple of chapters, Peter's going to, uh, the, the, the priests are going to, the high priests are going to show up and Peter's going to whip out a sword and start hacking and Jesus has to kind of clean that mess up. Um, and, and so it seems like Peter's thinking in these very human-centered terms, like what are, what's our part to play in restoring the kingdom to Israel and ending the exile, um, or re- being reconciled to God. And, um, and that sort of makes sense, right? Because the problem of holiness is God is holy and we are not. One obvious solution is that we should become more holy. Um, the, the problem with that theory is that it, it doesn't really work. Uh, and, and the reason I would say that is if you look at at verse 38. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So Peter thinks that he's got what it takes, and Jesus knows that he doesn't. Peter's got this great zeal, and Jesus knows that that zeal is very brittle. He's loyal when he's with Jesus, and then as soon as Jesus is not with him, he snaps. Um, and I think Peter is supposed to be representative not just of the other disciples, but also of us. He's, he's one of the first disciples. He's one of the most devoted. He's left everything for Jesus. Um, he's the first among equals. He's the leader of the disciples. And what's going to happen is he's going to stumble, and then all the other disciples are going to be scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And so I think we should not think that we're going to do any better than Peter in, in this sort of scenario, that we're not going to follow with any more zeal than he would, at least on our own power. And part of the reason for that is that, so in Luke's account, we get a parallel account, and, and Luke tells us that Jesus says to Peter, 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 Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And the only thing that stopped him from doing so is that I intervened on your behalf with the Father. That, that apart from Christ, we just, we're up against an enemy that's too much for us. So if the, if, if, if the solution to the problem of holiness is you know, is, is not make myself more holy, then, then what is it? Um, well, well, God's answer is, you can't do this 
but I can. Look at, look at verse 2. And I'm going to read verse 2 out of the, the New American Standard Bible because I think it, it better ca- it's a little clearer as to what the sense of the verse is. Um, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus says, I'm going I'm to go away, and the purpose of me going away is to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you to where I am. In other words, this is something that Jesus is doing. This is not something that we're really playing a big part in. Um, and, and then he'll even, he, he even then intensifies what he says in verse 4. We're starting in verse 4. And he says, and you know the way to where I am going. I think it's sort of a provocative question. It's supposed to draw out the confusion, and it, it works like a charm. In verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not where, know where you are going. How can we know the way? So Thomas seems to be thinking, like, there's an address here, maybe. Like, okay, the way is to go to the temple. and do, you know, I don't know. Um, and then Jesus responds to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, this is a God thing. This is something that Jesus is doing. It's not something that anyone else is playing a part in. And I say that in part because he reemphasizes the same thing he just said in the second half of the verse. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so how does this, how does this work? Um, if you look at, look at verse 3, and particularly the first half of verse 3, he says, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And so the word, the word that the ESV renders is take is in the, the middle voice in Greek. And in, in, in English, we don't have a middle voice. We have an active voice, I threw the ball. And then we have a passive voice, the ball was thrown by me. And the middle voice is sort of a mix between them. It's essentially, I, the, the subject is acting upon himself or something that belongs to him. So a, a good way to render that word, which is how the NASB renders it, would be receive. Or I, I, rec- I will receive you to myself, or I will join you, or I will associate you to myself. Um, it's pointing back to Jesus. And so I think it's talking about union with Christ language. That Jesus is receiving them in the same way that you know, a, 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 a husband would be joined to his wife. And the two would become one flesh. And so I don't want to steal, Todd's going to be preaching more about union of Christ later, so I don't want to steal too much of the thunder there, but I do want to acknowledge that that's what's going on, that we're united with him in his death, we're united with him in his resurrection, and we're united with him in his ascension. Um, so, so why would he be doing this? Well, the answer is in the second half of the verse. That where I am, you may be also. That, that the purpose of Jesus joining the church, his bride, to himself is so that we can share in the blessings that he receives. That we can share in the blessings of presence with the Father, that we can be with him there, and that we can share the other blessings that are deserved and due to him. So then, God's solution to the problem of holiness is to make us holy by joining us to his Son. And that doesn't really take away from God's holiness or God's glory. In fact, I would say, I would argue that it actually magnifies God's holiness or magnifies his glory, because God is the only one who is holy and glorious enough to bring us to where we need to be. And on some level, I think that truth is very easy. And on some level, I think it's very hard. Um, I think it's, it's easy because it, it means that essentially we don't have to, to prove ourselves to God. What we need to do is trust in him and believe in him. Um, 
it's hard because I think it requires us to admit our inadequacy. Right? It requires us to admit that we are not, we don't have what it takes. We're not, we're not holy enough, we're not righteous enough, we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not resourceful enough, we're not anything enough. Um, and we have to say, essentially, I can't, but you can, so please help me. Um, and so the, the application, I think, of, of this point, would be, or this truth, would be fairly simple. It would be that we should believe in, in God's way of reconciliation, which is through trusting in Christ. Um, that, that Christ has provided our way of reconciliation, and so we can lay our, our deadly doing down, for lack of a better word. Um, and I think that's especially true if we feel crushed by the weight of the truth of the problem of holiness, that God is holy and we are not, that we don't have to strive to prove ourselves to God, but rather we can trust in him and then we'll receive his Holy Spirit. And then his Holy Spirit will empower us to do all sorts of, of, of marvelous things and empower us to great levels of holiness, more than we could ever have attained on our own strength. And, and, and so uh, the, the solution would be to trust in him, trust in Christ, and then trust that in doing so, God's holiness will be magnified more than it would ever be on our own power. Okay, so point number one is, don't worry, but believe in me because I am the way. Or, let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in Christ's provision of the way and reconciliation. Then point number two would be, don't worry, but believe in me because I am the truth. Or, let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in Christ's provision for transformative truth. So, so the, the problem, I think, in, on display in this text is that we don't really know as we should. And I think, I feel this to a certain extent, I know other people feel this much more powerfully, um, that it's easy to turn Christianity into a knowledge system, right? Where the people who are the most academically gifted and the best at reading and the best at language skills feel like they've got all the answers and all the rest of us are kind of, well, you know, like, eh, I, I don't know. Um, and, and just feel like, I need, to know, I need to know all this information. I need to know so much about what's true. Uh, and it can be very discouraging, especially it can be discouraging in wanting to do things like reading our Bible. Um, it, but, but as Todd alluded to two weeks ago, um, yeah, two weeks ago, it's, Christianity is not a system of doctrines and rules to be believed and followed in the first instance. In the first instance, it's a relationship with Christ. Um, and so where, and so that's the thing that really matters, and that's the thing that we should be focusing in on, which is not to say the other things are not important, but that those things should be subservient to the relationship with Christ. And if we have that, we will, God will provide what we need. Um, so where am I getting this, this, this idea? I'm getting it from starting in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So I think what Thomas is saying is something to the effect of like, what's your, what's your teaching here? Um, let us know where you're going so we can go there too. What's the GPS coordinates? Um, and for him, it seems like following Christ to where he's going is a matter of knowing what he knows. Um, Maybe the right rules, maybe the right doctrines. I don't know. Maybe like, he says, oh, this is another hard teaching of Jesus. It's, I'm going to figure out this parable. Um, but that's not, that's not what's going on. And you, you can see that in Jesus' response in verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's saying essentially that... that, that and, and notice, he's not saying, I will tell you the truth. He's saying, I am the truth. That he in some sense, is the truth of the Father. And, and, and he's going to, moreover, he's going to reveal the truth of the Father to us. And I, I get that from verse 7. 
If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Um, so this, this statement from Philip, I think, is another one of those like off-the-wall silly questions there's like some deep misconception here and I think the misconception is that he thinks that Jesus is another human prophet that he thinks he's this great soothsayer that's you know spitting the fireballs of truth um, and that's not what that's not what's going on um, and, and, you, and, and, and so Jesus gets to that question beneath the question no I am not just another great prophet in verse 9 Jesus said to him have you been with me so long and still you do not know me Philip Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus is saying there's some sort of fundamental unity with him and the Father. To see the Son is to see the Father. Um, and you know, before we get into what that means, let's just pause for a quick aside and say, whatever it means, this is a, this is a, a very extraordinary statement. There's no one else in the Bible who speaks this way. Moses never speaks this way. Elijah never speaks this way. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of language that's unique to Jesus. So right there, it's a clue. Whatever he's saying, this guy is special. All right, so, so what is he saying? Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. So, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, I am the Father, and the Father is me. Right? He's not drawing, there's not a fundamental equivalence, not that they're exactly the same. He's saying that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That the Father speaks his words through him. The Father does his works through him. In some sense, he's the concentrated activity of God's, uh, he's the concentrated presence of God's activity on earth. Um, or, as we get from John's prologue, that uh, he is the truth and the glory of God made flesh, and he is the means through which we, God reveals himself to us. In other words, I think he's, he's saying it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And so uh, part of where I'm getting this is from, from second half of, of Second Corinthians chapter 3, which kind of walks through the relationship between Christ and truth in a way that I think is very helpful to us. Um, it, and, and essentially, Paul is trying to address the problem of you have all these people that know the Bible, all these Pharisees that know the Bible extremely well, and yet they don't see Christ there. And so what's the, what's the problem? Like, like, they have this truth, um, and Paul says, well, this, this, until we know Christ, the scriptures are veiled. That all we see in them is rules and doctrine. And then it's, it's only by, Paul says, turning to Christ, but I think the point is believing in Christ, that the veil is lifted. And we can see the scriptures for what they really are. Right? We receive the spirit, and the spirit reveals the truth and the glory of God that's buried in every line of scripture. And so we can see, we can see his glory there, and that glory slowly transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And so this, I think, is the Christian, this is basically the biblical process of sanctification, that we, we, we get Christ, Christ gives us the Spirit. The Spirit guides us into, interacts with the Bible, that guides us into, into seeing the truth of Christ and the glory of Christ in the Scriptures. And, and God, Christ is made more glorious to us. 
And, and that vision of God's glory impels us to greater and greater holiness. Um, and so one way I would illustrate this point is that at home, we have a, one of those little Weber grills. And sometimes I'm tasked with starting the fire. And so my strategy is I put a bunch of coals in there and I just empty about half a bottle of lighter fluid into there. And then I get the little clicker from the kitchen. Click, click, click. Goes up in flames. Um, and so truth is sort of like the lighter fluid there. Like I can put as much truth on the coals as I want, but the coals are not going to go up in flames. Right? What, what, what needs to be added there is, is the clicker, who is, who is Christ, or the, tr- the truth about Christ in the gospel. That there's something about that little spark, right, which Isaiah 42 refers to as the dimly burning wick that, that then starts the prophets, that starts, it catalyzes the reaction. Uh, and, and, then we can add, and then after that, we can add truth, 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 and, and the process is really going. Um, and so I, I would say the application for that, for that would just be that we need to believe in Christ's process for transforming truth. That we need to believe not just the truth delivered by Jesus, but much more fundamentally the truth about Jesus, the gospel, and how that relates to every line and every paragraph and every chapter and every book in the scriptures. Um, and I, I get that in part because a little earlier, this is sort of a recurring theme in John's gospel, and a little earlier in chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus has this very, I think a very scary warning for the Pharisees, which is that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have, you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So there's a, there's a Christless way to search the scriptures and extract God's truth out of the scriptures that has no saving power. And, it looks, and, and, and the Pharisees' problem was something like this. They would say, he's working on the Sabbath. He can't be the Messiah. And they're missing the fact that he's working great miracles on the Sabbath. Or they would say, he's testifying about himself. He doesn't even know the law of Moses. He can't be the Messiah. And miss the fact that God, through the Spirit and through his mighty works, is testifying about him as well. Uh, or they'll say, he's from Nazareth. No prophet has ever come out of Nazareth. Search the scriptures for yourselves and miss the fact that he's from God and he has this divine origin. And so I think it's, okay, so it's, 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 they're so fixated on what they thought was true in the scriptures that they miss the actual point of the scriptures, which is to point us to Jesus and his glory. Um, it's easy for us, I think, to beat up on the Pharisees Saying, okay, don't be like the Pharisees. There's some good application. Uh, but there's a, there's a Christian version of this too, which is essentially reading the Bible as if the Bible is what, is what saves us. Reading the Bible for its nuggets of truth. Uh, 613 rules to a better life. And the truth is that there's, not, there's, no, there's no hidden secrets in the Bible. It's all kind of open for us to see. And this is, it's, 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 a, it's a book that, it's God's revealed truth. I don't want to, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to, imply that it's not God's revealed truth and that it's not, it does, it's not like a great and marvelous thing. But the, the, but the thing about it is the, that truth is not what saves us. It's Christ through his truth that saves us. Christ through the gospel saves us. Christ through the gospel or through his truth grows us. That it's, this, is a, this is something that Christ is doing, the son of God. So don't search the scriptures and miss the point. The point is Jesus. And seeing Jesus in his glory is what transforms us. It transforms us when we receive the gospel, and it transforms us when we grow by seeing the truth in every line, seeing the gospel in every line of scripture. Um, so, okay, 
So what am I saying? What am I, or how, how would we actually put that into practice? I, I don't think it's saying, I, I don't think one way to put it into practice is just to um, read the Bible as if it's not saying anything except the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because obviously that's not the case. It's talking about, you know, the reality of sin and the blood-bought promises of God and punishment and joy and promises and all this stuff. So there's, there is real depth and in, 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 in dynamism to it. Uh, so it's not that we should just like write over what God has written and just put gospel, 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 gospel on, on every word, but rather seeing how it all connects to and points back to Jesus. Um, and so I would say that we should read the Bible as if we're trying to build a relationship with Jesus. That that's the primary means through which the Holy Spirit will help us build a relationship with Jesus. So that means, for example, showing up diligently to meet him there. Um, or reading it carefully as if Christ were trying to tell you something through it. Um, or entrusting the Spirit to do his work in the scriptures. Um, and, and then seek Look for, his, look for not just what it says, but then how it relates back to the idea of God's glory in the gospel. You know, read it for what it says first, and then see how what it says points forward to Jesus or points backward to Jesus. Um, in other words, I think we, we can trust that through this process, what God is going to do is he is going to grow us and transform us by renewing our minds, and then through the Spirit lead us into all truth. Okay, so point number two, don't worry but believe in me because I am the truth. Or, let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in Christ's provision for the transformative truth. Point number three, uh, don't worry but believe in me because I am the life. Or, let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in Christ's provision for everlasting life. So, okay, so... The first question I have is when Christ says, I am the way and the truth and the life, what does he mean by life? Well, So the word he uses there is, is zoe, which I think Todd mentioned two weeks ago, I think Kendall mentioned it last week, and it's like the, in John's Gospel, it's used to refer to eternal life, the life of God, the heavenly life, the life that goes on forever. Uh, importantly, is it the life that we were supposed to have in the garden, and then we forfeited in Adam, and, and God drove us out of, away from the tree of life. And so it's the life that at this point only God has. Um, and it's distinct from the life that we get in verse 37. So if you, the, the, the word for life in verse 37 is suke, which means uh, breath or spirit or animating life. It's kind of the life that makes me move my arms kind of sillily or, you know, walk around. It's the life that's it's got a countdown timer on it and it's slowly going away. Um, and so the main difference is that Zoe is forever and Suke is not. And so the disciples' problem is that their Suke is, is going away. And, and they would have been very aware of this because they're hanging out with a guy who's claiming to be the Messiah. And claiming to be the Messiah is a fast-track way to get you and everyone you care about crucified by the Romans. I think the Romans are not good at a lot of things. One thing they are really good at is crucifying insurrectionists. Um, it's like right there in their wheelhouse. Power and, 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 and just brutality is what the Romans do best. And that's why Peter's offering to lay down his life. Like, ah, no, nowhere is too dangerous for me, Lord. I'll go with you. And it's why Thomas, a little earlier in John's gospel, equated going to Jerusalem with a death sentence. And so these are the fears that they're trying to process through 
You're going away. We're relying and trusting on you. We're going to get killed. This is going to end very badly for all of us. And, and so notice what Jesus says in response to those fears. And again, this is, this is, this is going to be in verse 2. It's going to come out of, I'm going to read from the NASB again because it, it captures the sense. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. The point being that Jesus is going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. And uh, the word, the NSV renders it dwelling places. I think the, the, the ESV renders it rooms. The King James renders it mansions. Um, that, that, that word is coming from the word for abide or to remain. And so it's like a, it's like a place that you remain. It's a abode might be a good way to render it. Um, it's somewhere you can stay. It's not like a hotel. It's a permanent residence. And so I think what Jesus is getting at here in verse 2 is he's talking about Zoe and Zoe with the Father. That we get to go into his presence in his house and we get to stay there. Um, and so for us, it's easy to see that the disciples' concern is kind of misplaced. It's like, well, okay, he's, he's going away to lay down his suke so that you guys can have the Zoe of God. Um, and then once you get the Zoe of God, your life will be safe with God. It seems like a very good trade for you guys. I don't get why you're feeling anxious at all. I think it's harder, and, it's, it's, and, and part of the reason why I think it's easy for us to say that about the disciples is because we know how the story ends. Right? We, know, we know where they are, and we know uh, what Jesus was doing, and we kind, of, we kind of had 2020 vision. And I think it's harder for us to maintain that own perspective in our own lives. Because right, we don't, like we know in broad strokes where the story is going, but we don't know what the details are going to be. You know, we know what Act 5 is, but we don't know what Acts 2, 3, and 4 look like. Um, and, and so we can say things like, God is good, which is true. And we can say things like, God is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory through our suffering and through our trials, which is true. And we can say things like, God has already prepared a place for us through the provision of his son in his heavenly dwelling place, which is true. But I think it's easy for us to forget all that in our day-to-day struggles. And I think it's particularly easy, um, you know, if you're sort of demographically like our congregation, which is, which is very young, and, and you're living in America, and death is not really something that young people have to face a, a great deal. Um, and one of the things I, I, I noticed, we started a book club a while ago reading... Um, Older theologians. The only rule is you've got to be at least 200 years, you have to be dead at least 200 years. And so you'll read through these books and you'll get that they're very fixated on death. Like Calvin has this recurring illusion in his institutes about a falling roof shingle just killing you. You know, like that's, our engineering standards have advanced a great degree and so we don't really have to worry about that. Um, but what he's getting at, I think we can still do, which is that we can, we can cultivate a sense of perspective by setting our mind on the things that are above, or setting our mind on Christ's everlasting life. And so Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Your zoe, I checked the Greek, is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so Paul's reasoning is essentially your zoe is hidden with, with, with Christ and God and that has two implications. Number one, it means that we should, should set our mind 
on the things that are above, the things that last forever. We should remind ourselves of that. And number two is that we should be careful not to set our hopes and set our minds on the things that are, that are here below. Um, that we should remind ourselves that we are sojourners here. That our stay here is temporary. Uh, we are like aliens from another dimension that have been sent here to, do, to be God's representatives and do his work and then someday we will get called home. Uh, and in and, and particular, I think that we should remind ourselves that even, you know, no matter how long we live, that someday the trumpet will sound and Christ will descend in all of his splendor and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then, he, and then God will roll up everything like a scroll and make all things new. So, here's how I would illustrate this point. We have an ambassador to the United Kingdom. His name, I looked it up last night, is Woody Johnson. Uh, and Woody Johnson's job as an ambassador to the United Kingdom is to represent the United States' interest in the United Kingdom. Um, and he's a citizen of the United States. And one of, the, one of the benefits of being an ambassador is you're essentially immune to whatever goes on in your host country. The worst they can do is they can kick you out. Right? And so you do your tour of duty as an ambassador and then you get called home. And I think that's the exact same analogy that Paul is using in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says we're ambassadors. Our citizenship is in heaven and then we're sent as ambassadors here to this earth. And, and we have those protections. You know, uh, Satan cannot reach our Zoe. The world can do a lot of things but it can't reach our Zoe and it can't disrupt our citizenship. And so when our term as ambassador is over, God will call us home to be with him in his, into our homeland and he'll welcome us and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. All right, so point number three. Don't worry, but believe in me because I am the life. Let not your hearts be troubled but believe in Christ's provision for eternal life. So I would close on this note. Let's just remind ourselves of the two focal points of the text. Number one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe, in all, believe also in me. Number two, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or don't worry, but believe in me because I am the way and the truth, and the life. And so I think for, for those of us who have, who have already put our trust in Christ, this passage is an invitation for us not to worry. That, that in Christ, we're safe, we're protected, and he'll provide for us with everything we need. Um, and for those of us who are not yet in Christ, I think this passage is an invitation for us to believe. Uh, it teaches in particular that, that Christ has, has secured salvation for all those who believe in him, that Christ is offering reconciliation, truth, and life in his name, and that all we need to do to have it is to stop trusting in ourselves, in our righteousness, in our wisdom, in our provision, and start trusting in him, in his righteousness, in his wisdom, in his provision. That, that Christ has laid down his suke so that in him we can have the zoe of God. So, uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Christ. Let's give thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. 
For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.